Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us again this week for another episode of the Church and Culture Podcast. As we've been doing this podcast, we have been fielding quite a number of questions from viewers with regards to really just the study of culture and what that looks like in practice. We did give a kind of a quick introduction to this in our premiere episode, but it's been quite a while since we started now. So um, although I do suggest that you check that out, I thought maybe let's just take a break this week from the headlines and just dedicate this conversation to to this to the topic of just how to become a student of culture. Um, Jim, the most common questions that we've been receiving are things like, you know, how does Jim do this? And by this, people are generally talking about like, how do you study culture? What are you reading? What are you watching? How do you decide what to bookmark as important? How much time does this take? Is there a financial component involved with this? And then perhaps most importantly, like, should I be doing this? And before we get to those questions, which I know we will, like I am, I know you, and I know that your interest in culture has been a long-lasting one, and it's built on itself, like kind of like a snowball. So before we jump into those questions, maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about how you began. My passion is pretty simple, uh, I, and I remember uh, one time um, Francis Schaeffer, the great cultural apologist, uh, was asked by someone. Was he a presuppositional apologist or was he a post-suppositional apologist or an evidentialist? Um, presuppositional or evidentialist. And you have to know something of the fine points of apologetics to know what they were asking. It was a very sophisticated question. And I loved his answer because he knew exactly what the terms meant. Uh, but he said, I guess I've always thought of myself, he said, in answer as just being an old-fashioned evangelist. And I think that's the best answer for me and the motive for me. Um, I study culture because I want to reach people. And I want to see people come to Christ. And I want to see the church reach her full redemptive potential. I started MEC to be a church for the unchurched so that we could reach people and fulfill that mission. I'm a missionary. And this culture, that is our mission field. It's my mission field. It's your mission field. And so I study it in light of being a missionary. And that's really the heart and soul of it for me. If you were, uh, you know, dropped off into the deepest, dark basin of the Amazon or something, trying to reach an unreached people's group, what would you do if you were a good missionary? Well, you would learn the language. You would translate the Bible into those into that language. You'd learn about their music and and the way they dressed and and their value systems. And you would learn you would learn how to build a bridge of understanding to them by understanding their culture. And so it's no different with being a cultural missionary. Um, as for my love of learning and reading and study, that goes, as you mentioned, back to my earliest days. I was raised by a, a father who had a Ph.D. and was a research scientist and a mother who was a school teacher. And her mother was a school teacher. And I remember that uh, my mom could talk about a book like it was something good to eat. Um, yeah, she really could. And I just she could talk about a book and I just had to go out and just, I had to read it. I had to read it. 
and I'd be rewarded. I could be rewarded or penalized by whether I would go to a, whether I could go to the library and check out books. And I remember as a boy in elementary school, even as I, I would, um, I had a little cassette player that would be by my bed and I would go to bed at night putting in tapes, cassette tapes, listening to lectures or addresses as I went to sleep. I know it sounds like I was a rather bizarre little boy and I, perhaps I was, but I loved learning. I loved learning and I was fascinated by learning. And long before I became a follower of Christ in college, I was reading um, the works of Christian apologists and cultural thinkers like Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis and Walter Martin and others. Um, and working through histories like Will Durant's massive series or the great books um, uh, from, you know, everything from Aristotle to, you know, Darwin. I was eating up everything that I could find and I was fascinated by it. And I just had a love of knowledge and a love of learning and a thirst for that knowledge. And so that's pretty much that's how it started for me. And then it just got more and more. Uh, of course, there was formalized training that followed with my master's, and my PhD and studied institutions like Vanderbilt or Oxford and, and, and other places have added to it, but it largely started and is still fueled by, um, I'm an old fashioned evangelist. Okay. Well then this might be too broad of a question. So take it however you want to, but years later now, like give us a peek into what your study of culture looks like now. Yeah. It's so much more intentional. I, I, I um, I'll give a short answer because I'm sure going to be talking about several things as we go through, but I consider it part of my calling to study culture, to analyze culture, and then translate those findings to pastors and church leaders and the church as a whole uh, to help Christians think about the world in which we live and the world which lives in us. Uh, whether that has meant charting the rise of the nuns or uh, spotting a new generation emerging that had very distinctive marks, such as Generation Z and and um, or uh, now the importance of understanding all things hybrid and how the church must embrace a new model for a post-Christian digital age. Um, it's, it's continually very focused on how, helping us think about our world, understand our world, think about our world, and then be missionally effective in our world. Now, to be clear, there's probably a big difference between secular culture and Christian subculture. And I imagine that some Christians would think that they're very engaged with culture because they've read the latest Christian books, they've attended the latest Christian conferences, listened to sermons by some of the biggest names of Christian megachurches, right? But that's not the culture that you're talking about, right? Like, how might that distinction be important? Yeah. Yeah, there's two cultures I work hard to keep up with, the dominant secular culture. Uh, and then second, the culture surrounding faith, and particularly the Christian faith. Uh, those are two very different worlds, very different worlds. And even when you think you might be keeping up with um, the Christian culture, the Christian subculture of which you are part, um, uh, you're not, that doesn't mean really have anything to do, much anything at all to do with the secular wider culture. It's important to study our mission field, the world in which we live, the post-Christian world, clearly and very directly on its own terms, if you will, instead of how it might be filtered for you, uh, or even worse, operating uh, almost solely within a Christian subculture and think that you're seeing the world interacting with the world through that subculture the way it really is. The Christian subculture, quite frankly, is very insular. And, and as Christians, we need to be aware of what's happening in culture and engage it as much as we can for Christ. Because if we're not aware of it, we're not going to know the questions. We're not going to know the perspectives, the viewpoints of this world uh, that we're supposed to be wanting to reach for Jesus. And so I, I, do, I do see Christians uh, pulling back 
into their subculture almost as a way of self-preservation. They're frightened by the wider culture, and it's almost a form of a new form of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism classically retreated from culture and built their own culture within the culture. <clears throat> and um, it wasn't particularly effective, certainly missionally. <clears throat> and so I, I do think that we are talking about two cultures and we need to break out of it and study the wider one that we're trying to reach. Well, let's hone in for a moment on what you're studying with regards to secular culture, because there's just so much out there, right? The news, technological advancements, generational differences, music, politics, like the list just goes on and on. So how do you decide what to engage or what might be of importance? Let me give you an example. Sorry about it. I got a little tickle about how I think about things. And I'll, I'll, I'll use an example that I, I, that comes to mind from the past that um, was just kind of a, just a kind of a fun, easy one. Um, let's say it's the year 2017. Okay. Not that far ago. Um, and, and wanting to stay current. Uh, and this is exactly, I'll give telling you something that I did, but I'm gonna talk about it in third person. And in wanting to stay current, one of the things that you do was that you Googled the top 10 songs, just wanting to see what's happening musically and culture. So you Google the top 10 songs and you see the number one song, or maybe you just looked at the top 10 on iTunes or whatever, however you wanted to do it. It's, it's easy, low hanging fruit to, to find out what songs are dominating. And you see that the number one song is a song called Despacito. You don't know anything about that song, uh, but it's number one. And it's been number one for a long time. You haven't checked your music lately. And it's not just number one in the United States. You dig a little further and you find out it is number one in almost 50 countries around the world at that moment. And then you find out it's sung entirely in Spanish and it's number one in the United States, entirely in Spanish. And then you find out that the video was the first of that song was the first to reach the milestone ever on YouTube for over 3 billion views. That had never happened before. And by the way, it's now over 8 billion. Second only to Baby Shark. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you mean, but that's something to pay attention to. Mm. I mean, that, that's just like, wow, what's going on here? And it, it's obviously a culturally significant song. It's obviously a musical breakthrough. It says something about our world and the role of music and the nature of language. Um, it shows that we really are becoming a flat world as uh, that's uh, there's not that division between cultures that there used to be, certainly in terms of of pop culture and entertainment. Another sign of how the Internet is is making music of all kinds and ideas of all kinds and languages popular all over the world. We're not we're not multiple cultures. We're quickly becoming one monolithic culture uh, that that's a pretty important cultural reveal and trail to go down and dots to connect and things to think about. So that's an example of how I might get onto something. And, and uh, I'm constantly looking for those things, diving into those things, keeping abreast of those things, music, literature, movies, technology, podcasts, whatever, um, any and every cultural medium, uh, and, and trying to see what I can find. And most of the time, the cultural significance is, is very clear, uh, like with what the example I just gave. But, but there are times when when something uh, is of enormous significance and nobody's nobody's seeing it. And that's another thing that I feel very strongly about trying to elevate certain things that maybe we're not, we're not seeing, or at least few do. Let me give you an example of that. Again, going back in time, uh, think about the year 2007 in my book, hybrid church. I have an entire chapter called what the heck happened in 2007. 
Uh, it was based on something Pulitzer Prize uh, winning New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman wrote about, where he had a, a section called What the Heck Happened in 2007, only he didn't say heck. <laughs> he makes a case that it was one of the most pivotal years in all of human history. And I think he's totally right. And we missed it at the time. And it wasn't just because it was a year the iPhone was released. It was. That alone would have made 2007 significant. You think about the impact of the iPhone. But that was when the iPhone was released. But because of also, but because of all it set in motion and all that came into play in a simultaneous way, because beyond the iPhone, now think about all this. In 2007, beyond the iPhone, you had Facebook left the campus and entered the wider world. Twitter was spun off. Google bought YouTube and launched Android. Amazon released the Kindle. Netflix started streaming videos. And the internet crossed 1 billion users worldwide, which was the tipping point to it becoming the fabric of our world. All of that in 2007. It really was when our world as we now know it was created. It's when the digital revolution was unleashed. Most people didn't even notice. Most people didn't collect those, connect those dots, at least then. So I'm trying to look for things that need to be brought to our collective attention as important. And that's what I tend to write about and blog about. And oftentimes it comes up in our conversations. Okay. Well, I want to, let's talk about what engagement looks like, because you mentioned that this is a calling for you, but like you also have a job. I mean, you've got other responsibilities too. So I doubt you're watching all of the latest shows, reading every headline, listening to all the top music releases, like trying every new app. I mean, I want to speak for you, but I don't think that's what you're doing. But rather, I'm sure that you you have a strategy there. So what does engagement translate into for you? Well, first of all, the one thing you said, I, I have a job. This I consider this to be integral to my job. Sure. A very important part. And I, I would say that to any leader, but I also would make a case for any Christ follower. But it's certainly integral for me. But um, well, let's talk. Let's talk about that. Take reading. Which is essential to everything that I do. Um, I'm able to determine whether a book is worth reading and when it's not. I just can sit down with a book and in just a handful of moments, I can determine whether this is worth reading or not. And even among books that are worth reading, I make an assessment to the degree to which it should be read. And they don't have to be read the same way or with the same detail. Um, I, I have often required my graduate students that they've got to get a copy of Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. And I make it required. Um, and I've never had a student not thank me. Hmm. And so I'll put a shameless a little plug in for, for, for that book. Uh, he talks in that book about five levels of reading. And the first level of reading is just inspectional reading of books. And you can do a good, solid, inspectional reading of a book. It doesn't deserve to be read cover to cover, but you can glean really what that book's about. Got its main ideas. Um, I, I don't say that in a condescending way, like they're not a good author. It's just that the ideas that it has to offer and that what you need to get out of it is, is just easily extracted. And it just has one or two really important salient things that it wants to get across. And those are easily found. Um, and so uh, you don't need to read it word for word, page by page, taking hours to do what you could accomplish in minutes. So an inspectional reading can be just reading the, um, the cover, reading the back, looking through the table of contents, dipping in here and there, looking at critical chapters, surveying certain chapters, looking at conclusions, and just spending time with a book. 
I have learned for some books how to spend even 10 minutes with them and I can gain much of the content. Uh, and that's also a skill set, though, that you develop over time. Hmm. Um, and but, uh, but my point is that not every book you say serving a lot of books, not every book needs to be read or engaged the same way. Um, I read widely. And I'm looking for reading that is culturally telling and culturally revealing and culturally impacting. And all three of those are very important things to be looking for, because there may be a book I have no interest in at all, but I'm going to read it because it's culturally impactful. It's influencing other people. Or I might watch something on Netflix, at least enough to get it, even though I have no interest in it. But I, I, I know it's right now culturally influential. And you can apply this to every sort of reading. Um, not just books, but websites and blogs and articles, the degree to which you engage is, you know, you give it what it deserves. Another activity that I have is uh, I take advantage of a very broad news survey every day. It's a discipline of mine that I survey probably 15 to 20 websites, news websites every morning. Um, and from that, the church and culture website has a dynamic on there where it posts the four most important news stories of the day. We post that every weekday to the church and culture website. I do that myself and uh, submit those because it's part of my own personal discipline of keeping abreast with the news. I also think it's important to stay abreast of the entertainment industry and how I do that uh, by knowing, you know, just what films are out there and what's trending on Netflix or Apple or Disney plus or Amazon prime and specifically uh, which of those are culturally important or culturally shaping or culturally telling, revealing. And then I use my time working out uh, when I'm on the treadmill or the elliptical, uh, watching and reviewing those that are key, or at least watching them enough to understand them. Uh, or uh, another way of doing that is reading enough reviews and synopsis of it so that I have a sense of what this is about. And I read enough of those reviews and things that I'm, I'm being fair to it. Uh, you just learn to sift through things and find the culturally important things. And this, as I mentioned, goes for music as well. It's very easy to just go to Apple downloads or other places to see what's the most downloaded, down, downloaded songs. Uh, and you keep up with music that way. And if I'm not familiar with the artist or, or, or what they're saying, uh, it's very easy to Google the lyrics. That takes two seconds and I can quickly get a sense of the, the, the musical pulse. So that's a, a taste of, of just some of the things I do, just, just constant study of the mission field. But I should add, it's not just the intake of information that matters, but it's knowing how to think Christianly about it. And this is where I find many, the, the, the real breakdown is, I mean, there's a lot of people that can spot out, spout, spout off <laughs> a lot about pop culture or what's going on. But their thinking about it is very weak. Their ability to think about it theologically, biblically, even with cultural insight or from a historical vantage point. Um, so in one hand, I have all of my, my reading and study of culture, but in the other hand, I have a Christian worldview that I, I hope has been honed and shaped for decades. And it's the ability to read and interpret and analyze culture in light of that worldview that is the, the real heart of the matter. And if people want to know more about this, um, I would suggest reading my book, um, A Mind for God, that really outlines what a life of the mind looks like and developing it, how to be a reader and a thinker and a reflector and, and engaging the world uh, with your mind, uh, what it entails. Uh, it even gets into how to read, how to think, how to reflect on all of these things. So, hmm. 
Well, I'm not enough of a student of culture yet. Like I feel like if for all of our listeners who are just like dipping their toes into the water of this, like I'm trekking right alongside you. Um, but I, so I'm, I'm not sure I'll just say like whether all mediums hold equal value when it comes to trying to get a pulse on what's really driving contemporary culture. And so I guess my question is like, what are some sources that you would suggest our listeners to check out as they're just starting to do this mm-hmm. on their own? Well, there is obviously a difference between looking at something and trusting it. Um, the more you look at a, a broad variety of, say, news sources, the more you're able to spot when there is an ideological bias um, in an article or a reporter, uh, or even differences between, say, the opinion side of a newspaper and the reporter side. Like you got some, get some of them where it's kind of almost uh, two personalities. Like the Wall Street Journal's got a very conservative editorial board and much less conservative reporting. Um, but uh, among what I look at on a daily basis, such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, international papers like uh, from the UK, the Telegraph or the Times, uh, Francis Le Monde, um, you begin to see which ones are a little bit more to the right, which ones are a little bit more to the left, uh, which are more open to cultural issues, which are more open to religion, which ones treat religion more fairly than others, which ones have people of faith who are doing the reporting. You begin to learn this so that you can look at all of these sources and get a really good sense of truth and what is accurate when you look at a wide number of these. Uh, but again, you're not looking for the perfect news source, the one single, which is why I look at so many. You're, you're, you're looking for a sense of how the news is being told. Uh, it may take five or six different news sources with a trained mind uh, to get a sense of what you think is a fair assessment of something. Um, but then comes what is most important, which which is 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 to apply a Christian mind to it, thinking with a Christian worldview, engaging it as a thoughtful, informed, theological, sound, biblically-based person. Um, because that's what allows you to read something and know whether it's true or untrue, um, right or wrong, where the biases are coming in. Um, you're reading it not so much whether you can believe the New York Times, for example, or the Wall Street Journal, whether they're bringing in certain biases. You already know with almost any news source, about 90 percent is accurate. There's about 10 percent you better be discerning about. Uh, the goal is to have such a Christian mind that um, that that's the main filter, you know, your Christian mind and that everything is coming through it. That is what enables you to tell these things. Uh, now, as for sources that are more um, into reporting on cultural matters, there are obviously some front runners. <laughs> for example, the Atlantic it really, I think, is just does more on cultural issues of our world, whether you like their spin on it or not, they're taken or not. Their cultural reporting is is superb in terms of just what they're getting into and their attempt. Uh, the Nas- National Public Radio, NPR. And the Washington Post, those are three extremely, I mean, there's uh, very much, you'll find cultural stories there you won't find anywhere else. We're talking about larger cultural things. From a Christian perspective, Christianity Today magazine um, works to stay on on top of things as well. Um, And um, the University of Virginia has got some excellent work in the publication called The Hedgehog Review that uh, works very hard on this. Uh, uh, Gabe Lyons and his work with Q 
is trying to stay abreast from a Christian perspective on, on Christian things. And uh, you also, just in terms of just looking at this, you get to know the byline of people. You get to know individual reporters and, and ones that you can trust over others. For example, a lot of people might be a little suspect of the New York Times, for example, because it's supposedly so left-leaning, but they have evangelicals writing for them. And some of the articles, almost all the articles on religion or on evangelicalism are often written by an evangelical. And uh, they assign the stories to an evangelical reporter. Or if you know that they're, they're, you, you see as someone who's writing for the New York Times and you happen to know they used to write for CT. And so, you know, you, you learn these names and, and, and you see a sense of perspective. Um, same thing even with, with um, media journalists. Um, for example, someone might say, oh, the Today Show, that's so left-leaning or whatever. Um, then they don't know that Savannah Guthrie is a committed Christian. Uh, in fact, there was a New York Times article. They have this feature where they say, how did you spend your Sunday? And they did one on Savannah Guthrie. And it was uh, how much going to a, an extremely, what you consider a very solid Christian church, um, evangelical conservative is part of every Sunday for her and her faith is a very huge part of her life. And, and, you know, you may, you may or may not agree with everybody's politics, but you know, she's bringing that faith to bear there, um, arguably the flagship morning show. So that's good to know. Um, you just learn these things. This is actually one of the goals of the ministry of church and culture, uh, you know, that is behind this podcast, obviously through the website, uh, through the posting of daily news, through this podcast, through the blogs, through the annual conference, there are all to try to step into the world of cultural news and cultural engagements and hopefully being that trusted source or a trusted source uh, that people can look to. So I would hope that we would be one of those. Well, and I just want to point out the obvious point that you're not saying, but that is implied here, which is that really becoming a student of culture it, it means that you have to go beyond your natural everyday interactions and exposures. Like you have to intentionally seek beyond what you yourselves are interested in and how you, you know, the culture that you operate in within every day, right? Like it, maybe, maybe you could just speak to what happens if we don't do that? Yeah. I mean, and I think we've talked about it here a time or two. Uh, what, what, what we, that you, the tendency is is to pull back and only engage the news feeds that tell you what you want to hear, the news that you like, the the opinions that you agree with, and you 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 create a what they call a daily me. You know, your your everything is just you know. So you're very insular, and you purposefully don't expose yourself to anything else. And I think that that's 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 a, a great disservice and 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 harmful in many ways. Um, uh, I, I, I think that everyone has a responsibility to be at least a small s student of culture, to be aware of the signs of the times, as it says in Chronicles, and how we should respond and how we should think and react, to know how to be an astute Christian in this world, to be able to know how to engage your non-Christian friends and how to think Christianly about the world. And that's really the heart of this. I mean, it really is all about forming a mind for God. You know, when Jesus was asked to summarize the law, um, he quoted the great Shema passage from Deuteronomy. It's called the great Shema passage because the first word in the Hebrew there is Shema, which is hear, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And, and, and the, the, when he quoted the Shema passage, he, he did something only Jesus had the authority to do. 
<laughs> he altered scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. And when Jesus said, quoted it, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He added mind as though he wanted to be sure that was not left out of what a holistic approach to discipleship entailed. So I do think that every Christian has a responsibility to develop their mind and to think Christianly about their world and to break out of their their evangelical subculture or their gospel ghetto or whatever it is that they're in and, and really look at the world. And yes, you can bring along trusted friends and partners with you as you do that thinking. And, and again, like I hope that, that we are attempting to be for folks, but I think it's an important part of discipleship an aspect of discipleship. And again, part of being an evangelist. Hmm. Okay. Let me ask you a different kind of question. How much does the study of history play into understanding contemporary culture? You asking that question makes me feel like I've raised you well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm making progress here, people. <laughs> oh, I would say that the study of history is probably the most important thing in terms of studying culture, which may surprise people. Studying the past is the best thing to understanding now. I think it, in many ways it is because one of the keys to studying, understanding culture is knowing how we got here, what's going on. I mean, it's not like this is a stagnant moment. This is a dynamic moment. There's huge flows and streams of which we're just right now in one. So understanding the dynamics of that flow is, is critical to studying and understanding culture. It's been said that obviously, as you know, famously that if you ignore history, you're condemned to repeat it. But this, the study of history helps us see the big patterns and the big changes that are, that are going on. For example, let me give you some, some, a taste of how you can think about culture this way. Peter Sorokin was the founder of Harvard University's Department of Sociology. And he argued that you could look at all of the flow of civilization, of it swinging in one of two directions, like a great grand pendulum. And it either was going toward the ideational or was going toward the sensate. Uh, the ideational civilization was more theological, it was more spiritual, it was, it was, um, uh, whereas the sensate culture was more rational or scientific. And Sorokin contended that the uh, classical ideational period was the medieval. And then from the Enlightenment forward, we've been living in a sensate world. And, you know, looking at that, and if you play that thesis out, you could say that, oh, now we're starting to swing back in culture toward the ideational. We live in a day that now is more open to spiritual things than ever before. Um, now, um, not defined religion, mind you, but spirituality and specifically the supernatural that is wide open. Um, and so that's just an interesting way of looking at this flow of history of the pendulum swinging between these two. Another fascinating take in our world, uh, one that I have referenced a bit, it was, um, it came out of a very important essay that was written shortly after the second world war is written by a Catholic historian um, by the name of Christopher Dawson that was, um, I, and I was unfamiliar with this until it was required reading of me while I was studying at Oxford. Um, and I still think he's better known over there than he is here in the States, but it's brilliant mind. And in it, he makes a case that there have been six identifiable ages uh, in relation to the Christian church and faith, uh, each lasting three or four centuries. It's a fascinating thesis, but he parts all of history. And he said, each one of these six eras, ages in relation to the Christian church that each lasted about three to 400 years, had a similar course. Each age began and then ended in crisis. And the heart of each crisis was always the same. Intense attack by new enemies 
within and from outside the church, which in turn demanded new spiritual determination and drive. And without that determination and drive, the church would have lost the day. Dawson accounted for six such ages at the time of his writing. A building off of Dawson, I have argued that uh, we are now living at the start of another. Um, we are at the end of an age and stand at the beginning of another, a seventh age. Um, using history again, in my recent book on all things hybrid, um, I talk about another very important way of thinking about history or historical flow as it's led to a particular moment, giving insight and understanding. I argue that there have been uh, only three main areas, eras, in the roughly 2000 year history of the church in regard to spiritual context and communication. The first marked the beginning of the church. Uh, following Pentecost, the early church uh, faced a largely pagan culture, pre-Christian, that embodied pre-modern communication. Then everything changed. The, 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 the growth and influence of the Christian movement, uh, particularly after the conversion of the emperor Constantine in 310, uh, began to transform the West from a pre-Christian to a Christian culture. But that wasn't the only thing that changed. <coughs> so did communication, which evolved from mere language to writing and then to the mechanization of writing. We're now living in a third major seismic change as the culture of the West moves from pre-Christian to Christian to post-Christian. And on the communication front, we have the shift from um, oral, largely, to writing, mechanized, and then electronic. <coughs> we are now living in a post-Christian digital world. And uh, we've only had three mission fields since the time of Jesus, only three ways of communicating with that mission field. Uh, that has just changed for only the third time. And it's off the chart significant and the implications it holds for the church. So you can see the importance of studying history and the flow of history and, and how we got to where we're at and what's happening in terms of understanding our world. So I think it's absolutely pivotal. Well, on that note, are there any specific authors or thinkers from the past who had like a prophetic-like ability to interpret culture that you think we would benefit from checking out? So many okay. <laughs> <laughs> that we don't have time for. Uh, beyond some that I've mentioned, uh, there are there are helpful helpful primers. Um, uh, Barbara uh, Tuckman's. Uh, fantastic book of history called The March of Folly about the kind of mistakes that we just keep being made in history. And uh, there was another book by Newstad in May called Thinking in Time uh, about the importance of looking at our world through the lens of history. So those are kind of some modern introductions, some of these things. But in terms of authors, I would argue for the classics, which C.S. Lewis just called the old books. You find that some of these older writings I have enormous insight into present day issues. I'll give you just one example. I mean, there's scores. Uh, 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 Augustine in his book, City of God. Uh, City of God was written really as a cultural rebuttal to how people blamed the Christian movement, the Christian church, the Christian faith with the fall of Rome. That kind of as the Christian church ascended, Rome descended. And they said, see, that's what happens when Christianity became the official religion and Constantine converted and Christianity is to blame for the fall of culture and civilization. And um, and Augustine wrote City of God to rebut that. That still has legs. Even as I just described what he was trying to argue about, that Christianity was good for culture, not bad for culture. So, you know, that's a great example, I think. 
Uh, and uh, I mentioned C.S. Lewis. I think, you know, he, he's really known for his fantasy writings and for his apologetics. But I, I find the, the more I read him that it's his keen eye for culture and all things related to the rise of modernism that really uh, might be his greatest strength. And so I would recommend The Abolition of Man is uh, an excellent way of getting into that. Uh, going back a little further, another example of, of someone who uh, I think is very helpful for understanding our world, Pascal great French philosopher, mathematician, particularly his work, Ponce's. Even the great novels are helpful here. Uh, works by the Brontes, Dostoevsky, Jane Austen, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Charles Dickens, the, the, the plays of, of Shakespeare. Um, there are so many things that are influential and helpful there. In fact, at the end of A Mind for God, I, I have a reading list of about 150 books. Here are the classics, here are the ones to read. Um, and uh, take advantage of to form a Christian worldview and to understand the world of our day, which is why there's too many to mention here. But that <laughs> list, that's a pretty, I, I still stand by that list, about 150 titles. Hmm. Well, you may have just answered my last question, or at least maybe we can kind of bring this to a close. Because I, I, I wanted to end this by kind of getting really practical, you know, for our listeners to, of all the things that we've talked about, to kind of have what their next step might be as as they're trying to become better at this, you know, like a specific daily practice that you might recommend or a particular source to check out or, I don't know, a spiritual discipline that might have something to do with, you know, this practice. What of all that you've mentioned today kind of would be a great starting point? Yeah. I, let me not be self-conscious, okay? I, I, I want to give me a little umbrella of grace here while I answer this because I want to answer it. Um, and, and, I, and I, in a way that I, I, I don't mean to sound self-serving, but let me just answer it this way. I would read A Mind for God. Coupled with that is a book I wrote called Serious Times. A Mind for God is how to think Christianly, develop it, and then the reading lists that are there, Serious Times, will give you a good cultural overview of a lot of what's going on in our world and day. So those two books, and if you want to go even more higher up and deeper in, get the more recent hybrid church, but you know, get some of those books that are about this. If you want to take it further, um, uh, I would then take advantage of the Church and Culture website. I mean, that's why we have it, um, uh, churchandculture.org. Uh, and that's where you'll find these podcasts as well as on anywhere podcasts are available, but also the twice weekly blogs there. And you can subscribe to those. It's all free. Uh, and the daily news that we've talked about, it's all there and it's meant to serve. And I really don't know of anything quite like it. I really don't know of anything quite like the church and culture side that pulls all of this kind of stuff together. Hmm. In terms of access to sources that I think are good to keep culturally current, I mentioned some from a secular worldview. Uh, it's not that they're wrong. They're just not writing as Christians. And so you need to kind of read it that way. But I think the Atlantic is particularly good as well as um, um, I, I just don't know of any periodical that's engaging as many cultural issues. And most of the time, I think quite fairly. Um than they are. And NPR, National Public Radio, does enormous amount of cultural issues. And again, both of those are easily accessed by their website. From a Christian perspective, again, I, I would mention Christianity Today magazine. I think just pound for pound, that's probably you know still the go-to. And um, so those are some things that I think would be good accessing points, starting points. But hopefully what we do at Church and Culture is pull all of that and more together for people and save you a whole bunch of time. Absolutely. Uh, well, we've got our, our homework for us for this week. No, but I, I loved how you started this by explaining that like 
why we why you do all of this is because you want to reach people, right? Like you you want to be able to bridge build that bridge. And I think that any Christian listening to this has that same desire too. And so um, when you put it that way, you know, this becomes less of a chore and more of a calling, like you mentioned. So I, I really love the way that you put that. So thank you for letting us peek into your practice. I'm sure we'll be right back into the headlines again next week. So um, join us then. And yeah, I'm sure we'll serve you up a great conversation.